Welcome to Cato for a forum on President Obama's creative interpretation of the constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow in constitutional studies, and I'll be your moderator. Now, one of Barack Obama's chief accomplishments has been to return the Constitution to its central place in our public discourse. Unfortunately, the president has fomented this upswing in civic interest, not by talking up the constitutional aspects of his policy agenda, uh, but by blatantly violating the strictures of our founding document. And he's been most frustrated with the separation of powers, which doesn't allow him to fundamentally transform the country without congressional acquiescence. But that hasn't stopped him. And I'm not just talking about a lame duck presidency that never has to face the voters again and striving for a legacy. In its first term, the administration launched a We Can't Wait initiative with senior aide Dan Pfeiffer explaining that when Congress won't act, this president will. And in announcing his economic plan soon after his second inauguration, President Obama said that, quote, I will not allow gridlock or inaction or willful indifference to get in our way. Of course, every president is criticized for overreaching. But the Obama administration has pioneered a new way to shirk the chief, uh, the chief executive's chief duty, suspension of the law. In numerous areas, including Obamacare implementation, immigration law, and environmental regulation, the administration has carried out its objectives not by exceeding the law's limits, but by picking and choosing which provisions to enforce. In some cases, it has relaxed legal requirements as an inducement for states to carry out its preferred policies. In others, like immigration, it has established entirely new programs never authorized by Congress. And in every instance, this approach has allowed the administration to avoid legal challenge by ensuring that no party suffers an injury sufficient to confer the legal standing necessary to bring suit. At least that's been the working assumption but it not, may not hold true in every instance. Here to discuss this new abuse of executive power are Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz, Jonathan Turley, and Andrew Grossman, whom I'll introduce in the order in which they'll speak. Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz is a law professor at Georgetown and a senior fellow in Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. He has developed a new theory of constitutional interpretation and judicial review. That's not puffery. I'm getting that from his official bio. Uh, the first installment of which... Uh, a Stanford Law Review article entitled The Subjects of the Constitution is already the most downloaded article about constitutional law in the history of SSRN, this online uh, compendium of social science research. The second installment, The Objects of the Constitution, is also now out, and the comprehensive version is forthcoming as a book by Oxford University Press. Nick clerked for Judge Frank Easterbrook on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit and for Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. So clearly, this is why he has his finger on the pulse of modern constitutional interpretation. He also served in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department and often testifies before Congress, most recently before the House Judiciary Committee on this very subject. He's also argued before the Supreme Court, and his most recent amicus brief on Cato's behalf in Bond versus United States is based on his seminal Harvard Law Review article, Executing the Treaty Power. And his research there is essentially the basis for the entire Bond case a decision in which could come as early as this Monday. Nick is also co-chairman of the Board of Visitors of the Federalist Society. He's very impressive. Uh, but then you realize that Nick went to Yale for both college and law school. And as a Princeton man going to old Nassau for his 15th reunion next week, 
All I can say is nobody's perfect. Jonathan Turley has been a member of the, Georgetown, uh, the George Washington excuse me, uh, University Law School faculty for nearly 25 years, and in 1998 became the youngest chaired professor in the school's history when he assumed the prestigious Shapiro Chair for Public Interest Law. No relation to me there, uh, although I wish there were, I guess. He's written extensively in areas ranging from legal theory and constitutional law to tort law. Uh, unlike Nick, who only writes for Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford, Turley's articles have also appeared in the law journals of Cornell, Duke, Georgetown, Northwestern, and others. And in addition to his extensive publications and academic work, Turley uh, has served as counsel. That means he's actually litigated uh, in some of the most notable cases in the last two decades, uh, including the representation of whistleblowers, military personnel, judges, and members of Congress. He's one of the few attorneys to successfully have challenged both federal and state law, most recently Utah's ban on criminal cohabitation. Uh, in 2010, he represented Judge Thomas Porteous in his impeachment trial, only the 14th time that a judicial impeachment uh, reached the Senate floor. Porteous was convicted, however, and, and removed. Uh, and in 2011, he filed a challenge to the Libyan War on behalf of 10 members of Congress. He also frequently testifies in Congress on a host of issues, and in a recent study, Judge Richard Posner ranked Turley 38th on his list of top 100 public intellectuals. Uh, he's also been ranked as one of the nation's top lawyers, uh, top 10 lawyers in military law cases, and one of the top 40 lawyers under 40. He was also selected as one of the top 100 Irish lawyers in the world. And we were talking about this uh, uh, beforehand. I, I believe that there's a, a Guinness drinking component uh, of, of that selection <laughs> process. Uh, Jonathan is a columnist for USA Today, as well as an award-winning blogger. In 2012, uh, he was selected as one of the top 20 legal experts on Twitter, by Business Insider. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> Very interesting. That's the strategy, I guess. You <laughs> Honestly, I'm not sure. <laughs> Sorry to put yeah. you on the spot. Uh, it's connected to my blog, so I have no idea what you're <laughs> Last year, uh, ABA Journal inducted him, uh, or his blog, into its Hall of Fame, uh, and Professor Turley received his BA at uh, University of Chicago and his JD at Northwestern. See, now, Nick, those are real schools. Mm. Andrew Grossman practices appellate and constitutional litigation in the Washington office of Baker Hostetler and is an adjunct scholar at uh, Cato. He's written widely on financial regulation, bankruptcy, national security law, and the constitutional separation of powers, and is a frequent advisor to Congress on complex legal and policy issues, particularly those relating to the constitutional limitations on federal power. He has testified numerous times before both the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, and his articles have appeared in dozens of law journals, newspapers, and other periodicals. Uh, he's also a frequent commentator on radio and TV. There's a long list of outlets that I won't go through, but I see that you're missing the Colbert Report, and that quite possibly is the one thing that I can claim uh, uh, on this august panel. Um, Andrew has written many amicus briefs for Cato, for which he's uh, allowed me to, to, to take partial credit. Uh, and before joining Cato, he was affiliated for over a decade with the Heritage Foundation. We actually got him in a trade for a bag of pocket constitutions and an intern to be named later. <laughs> Andrew's a graduate of Dartmouth College, the University of Pennsylvania's Fells Institute of Government, and George Mason University Law School. He clerked for Judge Edith Jones of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Uh, we'll start with Nick. <laughs> Hey, uh, thanks very much, Ilya. I'm delighted to be back here at Cato talking about this important topic. Um, you all may have the 
inchoate sense that this president has uh, exceeded his authority in various areas. Um, but maybe you haven't analyzed these things as a pattern or tried to put this into constitutional context. And that's the purpose of our uh, event here today, is try to put some of these disparate controversies into constitutional context. I think I'm asked to go first here because I'm a textualist. So I'm going to start by pointing us to the constitutional text and see if we can wring any meaning out of these relevant uh, words before we get to more high-flown political theory. So the clause that's at issue here is the take care clause. And what it says is, quote, the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed, close quote. Now, so let's try and see if we can wring some meaning out of these words. There are a few things to notice about it at the outset. First of all, notice that it doesn't grant a power, but rather imposes a duty. This is the, pre the president shall take care. And shall take care. This is a duty. It's not optional. It's mandatory. Second, note that the duty is personal. The president shall take care. Um, now, other folks are going to do the actual executing, right? The president has thousands of minions who do the executing of the law. But the taking care that the laws be faithfully executed, that's a personal duty, a duty to the president that is not delegable. That's something he has to do himself. Okay. Third, notice, and this is very important, that the president is not required to take care that the laws be completely executed. And the reason is that would be impossible. That would be impossible given finite uh, resources. So the president necessarily does have power to make enforcement choices. Uh, however, there's a restriction. He must make those choices, quote, faithfully. And so that is going to be the linchpin of our discussion here today. What does that mean, faithfully executing the laws? Then finally, it's important to remember the historical context of this clause. English kings had claimed the power to suspend laws unilaterally. And the framers were wanting to expressly uh, reject that practice. So here, the executive, the president, would be obliged, required, to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. OK, so with these textual uh, observations in mind, it's now possible to view some of these recent controversies through this constitutional lens. I'm going to focus on three examples. I'm sad to tell you there are many, many others we could choose. But I'm going to choose what I think are the clearest three. Uh, one is the president's unilateral decision to suspend certain provisions of Obamacare. Second is the president's uh, policy decisions vis-a-vis -vis immigration. And the third is the uh, IRS targeting of, uh, the, of Tea Party and other uh, groups. Now, so these are all facts with which I'm sure you're uh, intimately familiar, but we're now we're trying to look at these facts through this constitutional lens and see what we can uh, make of them. So the Obamacare suspensions, uh, it is, you know, I'm sad to report the president has suspended or tweaked or interpreted Obamacare um, some 36 or more times at this point, and we could talk about many of them, but I'm only going to talk about one example again because I think it's the clearest. On July 2nd, 
2013, so July 2, right before the long weekend, the Obama administration announced via blog post that the president would unilaterally suspend the employer mandate of Obamacare, notwithstanding the unambiguous command of the law. The statute here is perfectly clear. It provides that these provisions become effective on January 1st, 2014. Now, you'll often hear people say statutes are ambiguous and they uh, they're, in effect, delegating power to the president to fill in the gaps or resolve the ambiguities. That's usually what Congress wants. But this is not such a case. This is as clear as a statute can get. Statute simply can't get any clearer than this. You don't need a lawyer for this provision. What you need is a calendar. That's all you need. January 1, 2014. But the blog post is written under the breezy Orwellian title, quote, continuing to implement the ACA in a careful, thoughtful manner, close quote, makes no mention of this statutory deadline. Says we're not going to enforce that thing today. So this blog post raises the question of what it means to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And again, I want to emphasize that um, the president does have a lot of enforcement discretion. He does get to make a bunch of choices. It doesn't require him to completely execute the laws. However, this was a wholesale suspension of law in the teeth of a clear statutory command to the contrary. And what I want to say is, whatever it may mean to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, it simply cannot mean declining to execute the law at all, suspending the law wholesale. Now, as if that suspension weren't enough, I think particularly troubling were President Obama's comments about it. So what he said on August 9th was that, quote, the normal thing he would prefer to do in this this situation is to seek a, quote, change to the law. That's what he would prefer to do. Um, And, uh, you know, quote, uh, he'd, prefer to, he'd prefer to, quote, simply call up the Speaker of the House, close quote, and uh, request a change in the law. That would be his preference, but um, apparently the reason he couldn't do that was um, partisan, the partisan climate is so toxic that he felt he couldn't uh, do that um, as to this. Now, the truth of the matter, though, is the president would not even have needed to pick up the phone, as he well knows. And the reason is this. House of Representatives had already passed a bill that would do the exact thing that the president wanted to do. They had passed a bill that would have suspended this provision of Obamacare exactly as he wanted to do. And far from welcoming this legislative change, he actually threatened to veto it, threatened to veto this uh, change, and uh, deemed the bill unnecessary, threatened to veto it. To me, this looks almost like a willful violation of the Take Care Clause. I mean, it actually seems like an actual preference for flouting the written statute rather than seeking a statutory uh, change. So that's example one. Second example is perhaps a mirror of the first in a way. The uh, Immigration and Nationality Act, the uh, immigration policies of this president. So. Um, Congress has repeatedly considered a statute that the president favors, which is called the DREAM Act. The DREAM Act would exempt a broad category of aliens from the Immigration and Nationality Act. 
president favored this act, but Congress declined to pass it. So on June 15th, 2012, the president announces that he would simply not enforce the INA against the precise category of folks that were described in the DREAM Act. He announced, in effect, that he would behave as though this thing had become law, though it didn't, right? Though it had not become law. Now, once again, the president does have broad prosecutorial discretion, broad discretion to husband executive resources and so forth. But again, it's crystal clear this is not what he's doing here. He's not husbanding uh, executive uh, resources or something. He's exempting 1.76 million people from the immigration laws. This goes far beyond any conception of prosecutorial discretion. And more to the point, this has a distinctly legislative character. This feels legislative. Why? Because it's exactly the content of a bill that failed to become law. To put the point another way, the president shall, quote, take care that the laws, capital L, are faithfully executed, not those bills that fail to become law. Right? But this one didn't. This is not a law. So here he's enforcing the DREAM Act, which is not a law, rather than the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is. OK. Indeed, the president made this exact point 20 months earlier. Quote, America is a nation of laws, which means that I, as the president, am obligated to enforce the law. With respect to the notion that I can just suspend deportations through executive order, that's just not the case, because there are laws on the books that Congress has passed. There are enough laws on the books by Congress that are very clear in terms of how we have to enforce our immigration system that for me to simply, through executive order, ignore those congressional mandates would not conform with my appropriate role as president, close quote. That's President Obama on this topic. And I want to say, that's exactly right. But there was no mention of that 20 months later when he took this action. OK. Third example, IRS targeting, is not usually talked about in terms of the Take Care Clause. But I want to put it in this context as well. And here's why. To me, a core idea, so as we try to think about faithfully uh, making prosecutorial discretion decisions, you know, take an easy example. Uh, Congress criminalizes bank robbery. The president says, I can't prosecute every bank robber. I don't have enough resources. OK. So he gets to make choices like, um, I'm only going to prosecute the violent bank robbers, or the repeat bank robbers, or the big bank robbers, or something like that, that's perfectly fine. That's what a president's supposed to do. What he's not allowed to do, though, is say, you know what? I don't have enough resources, and therefore, I'm only going to prosecute the black bank robbers, or the Catholic bank robbers, or the Republican bank robbers. He doesn't get to say that. So what I want to say is a core idea here of faithfully is non-discriminatorily not discriminating on uh, impermissible grounds. Now, the religion example, I'm only going to prosecute the Catholic bank robbers, would have horrified the framers, would have horrified the framers. But what, what I think would have horrified them even more is the possibility of prosecuting only the Republican bank robbers, prosecuting only your political enemies. I think that would have worried them yet even more than the religion example. And the reason is this. The single most corrosive thing that can possibly happen in a democracy is for incumbents, people in power today, to use the levers of power to stifle their critics and entrench themselves. That would be the thing that the framers would have been most worried about. And the reason is uh, 
it casts doubt on everything that follows, right? If you can't trust the results of the election, cast down on everything your government uh, does. So it's, you know, it's devastating to a democracy when this happens. And I want to say I'm afraid that's really the gravamen of the IRS scandal, right? This is the, pre- you know, this is the, the administration silencing, in effect, um, his political adversaries in election years, right? Congress enacts a neutral provision of the tax code An executive agency enforces it non-neutrally, discriminating on invidious grounds, discriminates against the Tea Party, discriminates against those who, quote, criticize how the country is being run, close quote, and for good measure, uh, discriminates against those, quote, involved in educating on the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, close quote. So we're all getting audited is what you're saying. That's right. Uh, And this is all happening during an election year. It's all happening during an election year. Now, of course, the president's been careful to distance himself from this scandal and say, well, you know, I knew nothing about this. I learned about it from the same news reports as all of you. But again, I want to remind you, the duty to take care is personal. Take care that the laws be faithfully executed is personal, non-delegable. There's a sense in which... um, Quite what the president knew and when he knew it is a bit beside the point. The point is he should have known. He should have known what his IRS was up to. So, uh, you know, in conclusion, the president has his personal duty to take care of the laws be faithfully executed. It's very hard to know quite what the content of that word is. But I want to say he can't suspend laws altogether. He can't favor unenacted bills over enacted law. And he cannot discriminate on the basis of politics in the execution of the laws. And I'm afraid this president has crossed all three of those lines. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be on such a wonderful panel and to once again appear at uh, Cato, this is a unique organization uh, that has really, since its creation in Washington, has contributed so much to the intellectual life of this city, but also to the field of law. Uh, This particular issue is one that was well-suited for Cato, not because of some libertarian aspects, but because it brings together, as Cato does, uh, people of different political viewpoints. The fact is, and let me say this quite uh, um, early, I happen to agree with President Obama's policies, many of them. I I think that Congress is wrong uh, in not doing some of the things that the president is doing. But that doesn't change my view uh, that the means he is using is wrong. And in fact, I believe that what he is doing uh, in the long term is highly destabilizing and even dangerous. One of the more difficult things for me as a constitutional scholar is to watch what is happening or not happening in Congress. Uh, One of the more confusing moments of my life was watching the State of the Union address of President Obama, uh, where he came out and told Congress that he intended to actively circumvent Congress and to uh, start to make changes that Congress had refused Uh, to approve. And instead of hearing murmurings or even voices of opposition, uh, what followed was rapturous applause. 
So you had a, the legislative branch applauding a president who just effectively promised to make them a non-entity. And it was a moment that bordered on self-loathing, that you would have these members of Congress uh, who would welcome institutional obsolescence, you know, to welcome a president who would effectively become a government unto itself. And the concern that, that many of us have is that the short-sighted aspect of politics, and certainly the politics today uh, is uh, rabid, uh, has really blinded people to the implications of what, in fact, is happening. And indeed, I believe that many Democrats will rue the day that they remain silent uh, as the American presidency changed. My greatest concern, and, and um, uh, we, we testified together on this uh, um, in front of the House Judiciary, my greatest concern is that our system is changing. And it's changing in a very fundamental and a very dangerous way. And it seems to be changing with, with virtually no notice. And it certainly seems to be changing without a debate. And the implications of those changes puts the entire future, in my view, of this country at risk because what is changing is the aspect of the system that brings stability. Now, as all of you know, uh, we have a tripartite system that was carefully designed uh, by the framers. And the framers really did view the, the branches as the, sort of three bodies in orbit. And I say that quite literally. I'm, I'm working on a book right now uh, on uh, uh, constitutional theory. And it looks specifically at the influence of science. And the influence of science was huge uh, for people like James Madison, huge for people like Benjamin Franklin. Uh, they were particularly enamored with the breakthrough writings of the time by Isaac Newton. And so if you look at many of the writings of uh, the framers, you'll see uh, repeated references to these scientific theories. And the separation of powers comes directly out of this influence. That is, the framers viewed the essential stability of the system to be held in place by these three orbs, essentially, the three branches. Now, it's true they were all equal, but like animal farms, some are more equal than others. And I tell my students all the time that while we have three equal branches, the most important branch is Congress, without any question in my view. Now, I tend to be a Madisonian scholar, so you'll see different views from uh, different folks. But it's in Congress where the magic of the Madisonian system occurs, because that's where you have this sort of black box phenomenon, where you have disparate factional interests coming into the system and sort of rattling around in these different constituencies, these different voting patterns. And what comes out, uh, hopefully, is a majoritarian compromise. And it's that system that brings the stability to uh, the American system. And the American system has survived remarkable uh, challenges. And the reason for that attention to stability and factional interests um, it was because the, the Congress was, uh, the Continental Congress was um, most interested about the instabilities that broke nations apart, and this is particularly Madison. 
But the other concern they had was the concentration of power. And this is one of the things that people don't seem to appreciate about separation of powers. They often talk about separation of powers as this protection of institutional interests. It was never intended, in my view, by the framers to be a protection of institutional interests, a protection of the branch interests. They always spoke of separation of powers as a protection of individual liberty. If you go back and you'll see the references that they talk about confining the powers and, and, and locking them in place, what comes out is a constant theme that they want to avoid the aggregation, the concentration of power in any one branch. And the reason is that they believe that to be a threat to liberty. They don't want any branch to have sufficient power to go it alone. So this whole separation of powers thing, and this is part of the complaint I have with how courts deal with it, uh, it's often treated as if we're talking about the relative rights of branches instead of a protection against the concentration of power. Now, the reason they were concerned about that, by the way, is because they had just gone through that in the English system. You had, of course, the famous confrontations with James I, who insisted that he could effectively rewrite laws, that he viewed, quote, natural reason uh, to be sufficient as he interpreted laws in a way that he felt they should naturally develop. And at the time, many English uh, scholars and lawyers said, you can't have a legal system if it's subject to your, quote, natural reason, that you can change it uh, naturally according to your own logic. So the framers referred to uh, the powers of the president as confined and defined, uh, as a direct quote, precisely to avoid the types of James I uh, issue. Now, I also want to be clear about one other aspect about uh, President Obama. I, I don't think President Obama is a tyrant. I don't even think he wants to be a tyrant. Uh, and he's not the first to abuse presidential power. I mean, let's be frank. This has been a long process. And just as the Democrats have been hypocrites, in my view, in some cases, these, uh, in not speaking up against the president, there was not a lot of outcry from Republicans when President Bush exceeded his authority. Uh, so let's be frank about that. And I say that without any concern at Cato, because during the Bush administration, this was the organization that actually did call President uh, Bush to account for exceeding uh, his uh, authority. So this has been a process that's been going on for some time. And that process is the increased power of the pres American presidency. We are developing what I referred to uh, a couple years ago as the uber presidency. Uh, that, um, and this certainly was um, uh, actively sought during the second Bush's administration. Uh, many people like John Yu had, had made it clear that they wanted a more powerful a presidency before 9-11, and 9-11 gave an opportunity for them to do precisely that. What was interesting about, the, about George W. Bush, however, is that he didn't have to circumvent Congress very much. So even though I'm going to criticize Obama a great deal in a few seconds, um, George W. Bush actually didn't have to circumvent Congress because he had 9-11, and Congress became passive and quiet and gave him everything he wanted. Uh, if you remember that period, it was just even the Patriot Act. Remember, they were working on the Patriot Act, and then the administration just showed up with its own draft, and that's the one that passed. Uh, that's how things worked after 9-11. So actually, George W. Bush didn't have to circumvent very much. Um, Obama obviously has a greater need, but that doesn't justify it. 
Uh, what, what we're seeing with President Obama uh, is a wholesale uh, attack, in my view, on the separation of powers. And this includes non-defense issues, like we saw with DOMA, which I have a great deal of trouble with. I happen to, once again, agree with the president on DOMA and same-sex marriage. But I have strong uh, objections to stripping a case of representation for a bill that was passed by Congress and signed by President Clinton. Somebody needs to defend that bill to have the system work. And, and justices on both sides of the political spectrum criticized the fact that, that this issue was coming before the court. And in both Hollingsworth and Windsor, both the state and federal case, the respective attorney generals made it very difficult for the court to even reach the merits by essentially pulling the rug out from the law. I thought that was wrong, and I still think it's wrong for uh, Eric Holder recently to encourage attorney generals to do the same thing. The greatest challenge, of course, is non-enforcement. And we saw that uh, with immigration, gambling, ACA is a different issue. But we've seen the, the case where, where President Obama went to Congress and asked for changes, was unable to get those changes, and then proceeded to order the very same changes through unilateral executive action. Uh, and um, the DREAM Act is a good example of that. Uh, what is great, a great concern, of course, is that there's no limiting principle to that claim of executive power. So let me end with this. Ultimately, the one thing that comes out of the framers from the Constitutional Convention is a fear of tyranny. And tyranny is often objected to by Democrats because you're saying, well, the president's a tyrant. It's really not true, just as the term imperial presidency is not supposed to suggest that the president wants to be an emperor. It refers to the concentration of power. We have in this country... Uh, as close as we've ever gotten to an imperial presidency. Indeed, uh, a few months ago, I was asked to speak at the Watergate um, anniversary in the National Press Club. And I came with this really great historical speech about Watergate that I worked a long time on. And I stood in front of it, and there was all the Watergate people, you know, Ellsberg and Elizabeth Holtzman and Buttersworth, all of them were there. And, and I stopped, I said, you know, I know I'm supposed to be talking about the history of Watergate, but I, suddenly I have this overriding need to ask you one question. How did Richard Nixon win? Because the thing is, it occurred to me when I stood up there, really, President Obama is the president Richard Nixon always wanted to be. I mean, when you think about it, if you look at the articles of impeachment, President Obama is now doing many of those very same powers openly without objection. And it's mystifying to me is what has changed? And I suppose, I suppose the answer is we've changed. Citizens have changed. Um, we seem to be more passive. We seem to be more detached. We seem not to really appreciate the implications of what an uber presidency means to a nation that is based on limited powers and the rule of law. You know, the greatest uh, fear uh, that that I have is that James, uh, that John Adams will be proven correct. Uh, when the Constitution was enacted, Adams famously said, 
uh, there has never been a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. It's a chilling thing. And what he was saying is that we have within our own powers the seeds of our own destruction. I don't think that it overstates the danger uh, to civil liberties. Uh, when we talk about quotes like that, uh, if you develop an uber-presidency in this system, if you develop a dominant uh, branch among the tripartite uh, branches, you put liberty at stake. You're taking offline the very system that is designed to protect your liberties. And I'm afraid we're getting close to that. And we're not even having a whimper of regret. And that's my primary concern. Thank you. Well, gosh, um, that was despairing. Um, <laughs> but let's see if we can conclude the, uh, the prepared remarks portion of this program on a more positive note. And I, I think that we can. Um, the problem, as Nick and uh, Jonathan described it, is that the Obama administration seems to believe that it's discovered a constitutional loophole. That is, that it can suspend the provisions of law, and it can use that as leverage to carry out its preferred policies. And no one, no one, has the ability to challenge these suspensions in court, even though they may be contrary to law. But as, as I see it, that's only half the problem. The president and his advisors think they've discovered this loophole. Fine. The other half is that everyone seems to believe them that this truly is a loophole and that there's nothing practical that can be done about it other than to moan and complain and hope for political change in the future. But if there's one thing that can be said about loopholes in the law, it's this. Courts hate them, particularly when there's no sound logic to them. It's one thing for Congress to enact a narrow tax exemption that may resemble a loophole. Taking advantage of it's just taking advantage of the statute, taking advantage of the law. But it's quite another thing to take advantage of a blind spot in jurisprudence and to use it to upend the separation of powers. The loophole that the Obama administration is counting on is a court-created doctrine known as standing. My argument is that the administration's reliance on that doctrine may well be misplaced. Now, standing is a limitation on judicial power that, according to the Supreme Court at least, is compelled by Article III's case or controversy requirement. A party filing a lawsuit in federal court must show three things. An actual injury that is caused by the challenged conduct and that can be redressed by a favorable decision. This means that things like abstract policy disagreements and generalized grievances do not provide standing to sue. You can't go to federal court. Instead, the injury to the plaintiff must be concrete and particularized. So that's the problem. The assumption is that if the executive branch is declining to enforce the law, nobody has standing to challenge it. Nobody was injured with the kind of concreteness required to support standing. Uh, to give a, con a specific example, uh, if an individual is not deported, who according to law probably ought to be, um, that person hasn't suffered any injury and no one else has suffered the requisite concrete injury that would be uh, suitable to provide standing. The same for being allowed to keep your health care policy for another two years or not paying a fine or a tax. Um, when the injury, while the injury to the rule of law in these instances may be quite severe, it's still not su sufficiently individualized to any person or entity. Or is it? When the president chooses to usurp the legislative power by suspending the law, arguably the, arguably the parties that hold the legislative power are injured, that is, the House and the Senate, in their institutional capacities. And in that may be the kernel of a solution to this problem. Now, many cases address what's called legislative standing. Now, almost but not quite as many deny it. 
Um, but I think that by reviewing the case law, we can identify particular circumstances in which a court is likely to find standing by legislators to challenge a suspension of the law. Now, three kinds of cases are relevant. The first is where you have an individual legislator or a group of legislators challenging some executive action is unlawful. Uh, for example, you go back a few years, Dennis Kucinich was bringing lawsuits left and right to end military action. Now, these always fail. Why? Even if the executive action is unlawful, an individual legislator, even a group of them, has suffered no individualized injury. Whatever legislation rep Representative Kucinich might have introduced, however he might have voted, it wouldn't have made a difference with respect to the executive's action. Therefore, there's no injury. Another example is the 1997 case, uh, or, or is provided in the 1997 case, Reigns v. Byrd, where six members of Congress sought to invalidate the line item veto, the Veto Act, under which the uh, president could uh, veto particular provisions of spending bills. The Supreme Court held that there was no standing in that case. Why? Well, several reasons. But the primary one was that the plaintiffs were individual lawmakers, asserting what was, as the court later held, an institutional injury. Now, second, and by contrast, there are suits where a chamber of Congress brings suit to enforce something like a subpoena. Pretty low stakes, but the interesting thing is they pretty much always uh, have found, been found to have standing. Now, why is that? Now, that's because the House or the standing as a whole has the power to conduct investigations. And when that power is thwarted, the chamber itself suffers an institutional injury, so it can bring suit. And the third, and I think the most relevant for our discussion today, are suits where a legislative body or enough members to act for that body, such as a majority, challenge an executive action that strips them of their power. The chief example is Coleman v. Miller, where state legislators challenge the state's ratification of a proposed uh, amendment to the US Constitution. The Supreme Court found standing. It held that legislators whose votes would have been sufficient to defeat the specific legislative act have standing to sue if that legislative action goes into effect on the grounds that their votes have been completely nullified. Now, that was a 1939 case. But just this past March, the Tenth Circuit held the same thing in the case called Care v. Hickenlooper, a challenge by six state legislators to Colorado's Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which they said nullified the effectiveness of their votes regarding uh, particular taxes. Now, from these three cases, or from these three sets of cases, I think we can derive two requirements for legislative standing. The first is that any suit must be brought by the institution, or at least by enough members to represent the institution. And the second is that the injury at issue must be one to the institution. In other words, the executive's action must be one that contradicts or nullifies an act of Congress. So why hasn't this happened much yet? The main reason is that after reigns, everybody just assumed that legislative standing was dead. But that notion was rejected just this past year, I think, uh, in Windsor, the case regarding uh, Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act. Now, the court didn't actually resolve the issue entirely. Um, the issue in a nutshell, and uh, Professor Turley touched on it, was uh, Edith Windsor brought a claim against the US government for money um, that she claims had been uh, wrongly taken from her in violation of her equal protection rights. The United States government refused to defend the claim, and so it lost before the district court. The question is, how on earth was there any standing to proceed with the case and for anyone to bring an appeal such that the uh, courts of appeals and the Supreme Court could finally resolve the issue? The majority opinion by Justice Kennedy surprisingly suggested that the proper party with standing was the United States, um, even though it agreed with the plaintiffs. Now, why he held that and whether that's really just a ticket good for one ride only, that's not really relevant here. But what is interesting is that his opinion at least suggested, without holding as much, that the House's bipartisan legal advisory group, a group that was voted on by the House to represent the House in its institutional capacity, had standing. And that, indeed, its participation was essential for the court to have prudential standing, 
whatever exactly that means in this context, um, because it would provide sharp adversarial presentation of the issues before the court. The justice who reached the issue directly and who held that the group, uh, the BLAG, uh, did in fact have standing was Justice Alito. He dissented in the result of the case, the equal protection claim, but he did point out that BLAG's standing was secure under the court's 1983 decision in INS v. Chadha, which struck down the so-called legislative veto, provision by which one or the other chamber of Congress could veto an action by the executive branch. One problem in Chadha, though, was that, like in Windsor, the administration actually agreed that the with the plaintiff that the statute at issue was unconstitutional. So the legislative veto there was defended by the House and the Senate. And as in Chadha, as Justice Alito explained, Congress is the proper party to defend the validity of a statute when the executive branch refuses to do so. Justice Scalia also dissented, and it's worth considering his objections. He was joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas. Justice Scalia rejected legislative standing, reasoning that Chadha only concerned the circumstance where the House and Senate are threatened with the, the destruction of what they claim to be one of their institutional powers. In other words, something as specific as the legislative veto, something with a procedural component to it. But he argued that, it, that legislative standing extends nowhere beyond that, because to do so would interpose the courts in all manner of political disputes, undermining the separation of powers. He imagines a parade of horribles, due to the fact that, um, if, if you took the opposite view, uh, quote, Congress can hail the executive before the courts, not only to vindicate its own institutional powers to act, but to correct a perceived inadequacy inadequ in the execution of the laws. Now, of course, that's precisely what we're talking about today. So is Justice Scalia right about that? Should we really be wary of greater recognition or proper recognition of legislative standing? I don't think so. The courts need not wade into matters that are purely political. As a prudential matter, they may refuse to decide so-called political questions, just as they've done for many years. That includes resolving issues that the Constitution commits firmly to other branches, like whether or not to declare war, and policy issues that are not susceptible to judicial determination. In addition, the courts can, as suggested in Reins and Coleman, take into account special considerations uh, in legislative standing cases, such as whether any private plaintiff is available to challenge the executive action at issue and whether the legislative branch has some other means at its disposal to carry out its will, for example, by passing legislation. As Justice Holmes said in response to the claim that the power to tax is the power to destroy, not while this court sits. Justice Scalia offers no reason to believe that these kinds of cases would be anything other than few and far between, so long as the court enforces its traditional, traditional limitations uh, on its jurisdiction. Even so, cases that are brought few and far between could be quite powerful. Legislative standing uh, applied in this manner would alter slightly the dynamic between Congress and the president. The president would know that he cannot suspend the law with impunity. It wouldn't take more than one or two high-profile lawsuits to have this effect. Just, it's just like the filibuster in that respect. A credible threat is enough so that no one actually has to follow through in subsequent cases. Now, Justice Scalia's position is, I suspect, also wrong as a legal matter. It's notable that his opinion is heavy on political philosophy and hand-waving, but very light on the case law. There's a reason for that. There's no clause of the Constitution that precludes or casts doubt on legislative standing in proper cases. The text says nothing of any relevance, only that the court may hear, quote, all cases arising under this Constitution and the laws of the United States. There are no structural cues that cast doubt on legislative standing, at least not specifically. And what did the framing generation think? Well, gosh, who knows? They didn't seem to give the question much thought, and why would they? The federal government had so few powers, and the ones that it had were so constrained. This was not a problem they could have conceived. The failure of Scalia's Windsor opinion is not unique in this respect. Standing has always been a bit of a blind spot for conservative originalists, 
particularly in the wake of the perceived activism of the Warnenberger courts. While aspects of standing doctrine certainly flow from the constitutional separation of powers, there is no standing clause in the Constitution, and not every aspect of modern standing doctrine has its roots in the Constitution's text or structure. And finally, whether or not Justice Scalia's concerns are valid, I think it's fair to say that they're certainly misplaced. Just two years ago, the Supreme Court considered and largely upheld Obamacare, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Would it really spell the end of the republic or anything like that for the court to consider whether the executive branch may waive a single provision of that statute? I think to ask that question is to answer it. It's a ludicrous proposition. There are all kinds of controversies that federal courts resolve every day, and there is no sense, no sense at all, in creating a loophole that actually does upset the balance of power among the political branches. Well, let me conclude with a prediction. The power of suspension is something that's actually new under the sun, a constitutional blind spot at the least, and it's a power that will be put to use by subsequent administrations. They will not have a choice when their hardcore supporters are demanding executive action. In this way, Barack Obama may have permanently altered constitutional practice. The only way to put that genie back in the bottle or to shut Pandora's box or whatever metaphor you care to use uh, is for the courts to do it. That realization, I think, should make the courts more, not less receptive to legislative standing lawsuits that seek to enforce the traditional separation of powers against this administration's overreaches. So that's my prediction. If Congress brings the right case, it may well prevail. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for uh, that. Uh, uh, I guess a, a, a ray of sunshine in an otherwise bleak uh, uh, panel presentation. I should note that apparently the, the Twitters have been active during this panel. Uh, for those of you wanting to follow along, I don't, I don't know if we have a hashtag, but uh, Nick's uh, uh, Twitter account is at ProfNQR. We have at Jonathan Turley, at I Shapiro, and I didn't have a chance to look yours up, Andrew. Uh, Andrew M. Grossman. Andrew M. Grossman, there you go. So you can tweet at all of us now. Okay, uh, before we open it up for questions, uh, I have, I wanna pick up on something that, that Andrew just said and kind of work backwards. Um, are you saying that uh, to challenge uh, any particular law or executive action that uh, uh, arguably uh, infringes on uh, separation of powers, uh, the House Republicans say uh, can just pass a resolution uh, saying that they feel injured create a blag, uh, and that creates legislative standing? Um, the answer is no. Um, I think there are, as, as I discussed, certain prudential limitations uh, on the ability of the House uh, or the Senate to take action uh, in, in that nature. I think you'd have to have a clear-cut suspension of law. I think that's sort of the baseline requirement. It'd have to be an area where the executive um, is, is simply n effectively nullifying a statute that's been enacted by Congress. And then the prudential considerations, are there private parties who would have standing to challenge this? Um, is this something that is truly a political question? Are you talking about something that's truly an issue of uh, enforcement to crash, uh, discretion, the kind of faithful execution of the law that uh, Professor Rosencrantz was discuss discussing? But I think if you get past those hurdles, then yes, the answer is yes. Do either of you have anything to add on challenges, lawsuits? Um, I, I would only add that uh, uh, I, I've always been an advocate for broader standing, but particularly uh, I've testified in Congress to, in, in favor of finding ways of ramping up uh, uh, legislative standing. In my view, the courts have made uh, a, a terrible mess of this whole area. 
And I actually blame a lot of what you, is, is viewed as dysfunctional politics in Congress on the courts, not on Congress. I mean, when the courts repeatedly uh, decide they're going to abstain and refuse to uh, rule or review uh, separation of powers uh, issues, they leave it to raw politics. They're removing themselves from the system. And that forces the parties to engage in the types of raw dysfunctional politics that we're seeing. Uh, so I blame a lot of this on the courts. Um, having represented the members in challenging the Libyan war, and we had both Democrats and Republicans, um, I think it was absurd. I mean, the fact much of the problem we're having with, with these constitutional violations where no one seems to have standing to challenge it would be rectified if we had a more robust legislative standing doctrine. Um, this is a relatively small number of people who have skin in the game, can actually represent these interests well, uh, which is one of the issues you look at standing. But I think what we've seen is that the standing doctrine has become this really grotesque presence within our separation of powers where it's not functioning well because the courts are removing themselves from the equation. Uh, sure. I guess I'd just say uh, I think um, there's a lot to what Andrew says as a matter of first principles. I'm not as sanguine as he is about the court's receptivity. I mean, as, I'm, as a matter of prediction, I would say that I doubt that the court will uh, wade into this, perhaps unfortunately, but I'd be surprised. All right, let's open this up for questions. Please wait for a microphone, identify yourself, and actually ask a question right here. Uh, my name is Stephen Shore. No one has mentioned the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were passed by a Federalist Congress, many of whose members did work on the Constitution and whose Constitution and was whose enforcement was even more partisan than the IRS treatment of Tea Party and other applicants for tax exemption. And Jefferson, as president, uh, uh, declined to enforce it, believing that it was unconstitutional. So would the founding fathers really have turned over in their graves, having, while they were still living, passed the Alien and Sedition Acts? And is Jefferson's refusal to enforce a law because he believed it unconstitutional, a legitimate exercise of presidential power? Yeah, shall I? Sure. Uh, that's a great question and an important distinction to draw. So uh, I do absolutely believe that a president can decline to enforce a statute on grounds that he believes it to be unconstitutional. I think he has power to do that. I think, in fact, he's got a duty to do that. Um, and so, the, you know, the controversy about many of President Bush's signing statements, the gravamen of the signing statements was along the lines of, uh, I'm, going, uh, I'm not going to enforce Section X because I believe that it is unconstitutional. Um, that is quite distinct from what President Obama is doing. He doesn't think Obamacare is unconstitutional. In fact, he thinks it's fantastic. He just thinks that this one provision of it is politically inconvenient for this particular election year. That's a quite a different matter. Um, I, I would add that I talked about the Jefferson issue in my last testimony um, as being the strongest case for non-enforcement. Uh, now, that act is a little odd because it is a more than most acts heavily imbued with prosecutorial discretion in terms of the individual cases, but I still think it's problematic. Um, for the most part, when you've seen presidents where non-enforcement has been challenged, it has not gone well. If you have, like, Buckley and Ford's 
a problem with regard to to this. Even uh, you know, if you take a look at um, Wilson's uh, case in Myers, there were three justices at that time that believed he was absolutely wrong that he could not in, uh, enforce it. I would agree that we're talking about something that is not as close an issue as that. Uh, you know, here you have repeated um, efforts by the administration to change the law, and then when unable to do so, simply telling the, the agencies, don't enforce it. And one of the things that we all posed in our, in our testimony before Congress is the implications of this. What if the next president says he doesn't want to enforce environmental laws or discrimination laws or tax laws? Uh, there is no clear distinction in my mind between those laws and what President Obama is doing. And that leaves us where I just mentioned earlier in raw muscle politics. That's what we have become because the courts are no longer present. And so we're just going to have these muscle plays of presidents refusing to enforce laws and Congress trying to do nasty things in response when the system was designed for judicial review. Um, I might just make one other point about the Sedition Act. So the Sedition Act actually itself as an act of Congress is non-neutral. It's not, it is on its face. It actually discriminates on the basis of viewpoint and, uh, the, so it, it's clear to me it violates the First Amendment. First Amendment binds Congress, right? Congress shall make no law. And I would say Congress violated the Constitution on the day when they enacted the Sedition Act. But, so that's a restriction on non-neutral acts of Congress. The symmetrical restriction is the word faithfully. So when Congress passes a neutral statute, the restriction on the president enforcing it non-neutrally, that's the word faithfully. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, going back to some of the comments that Professor Turley made earlier about how some of these initiatives that the president is pursuing are, um, you know, agreeable, uh, at least, you know, with respect to his particular opinion or uh, to the Cato Institute, uh, the one policy that comes to mind is the president's decision to not enforce marijuana laws in Washington and Colorado. Obviously, Cato has published you know, a number of papers saying that marijuana should be legal and you know, on tax revenue and those sorts of things. So uh, are there means of pursuing this policy that are within the bounds of the rule of law, short of simply you know, advocating for change in the policy and political arena, which you know, based on this Congress's track record would be a waste of time and oxygen, uh, are there other means of, of pursuing those, you know, preferred policy proposals that, that you would suggest? I, well, first of all, I think that we need to acknowledge that some of the things that are controversial with President Obama, I think, are within the strike zone. So, for example, uh, the new greenhouse gas regulations, which the Supreme Court has previously reviewed, is back from the Supreme Court uh, this term. Um, that seems to me well within his authority because of the way that the statute was drafted. I actually happen to really agree with that, but with his policy, but I still think it's not a good practice. I still think it's not a good thing to implement a massive new regulatory system and to just cut Congress out. And so the answer is there are ways for the president on the edges to influence these policies, but he can't do it through this claim of prosecutorial discretion, which I think is wildly exaggerated for things like immigration. The other thing I would note is that, as you mentioned, you can't really expect much out of Congress. This has become the main argument of the administration, and it drives me to distraction, okay? 
the, the framers understood lethal politics. They lived during a period of lethal politics. We talk about parties wanting to kill each other. They actually tried to kill each other. I mean, during that period, that's what the Sedition Acts were all about. They wanted to kill each other physically. And uh, so to say that somehow our politics justifies this is loony. The, the point, it, actually the more powerful point is the contrary one. There's a reason why Congress is not getting things done because we're divided as a people. If you look at the United States, we are entirely divided, and Congress is doing what it's supposed to do. It reflects the public. It's supposed to be representatives, but it's also supposed to, rep to reflect the public. And so when the president says, well, Congress isn't going to get anything done, what he's really saying is that we can't agree on anything. But that's not a license for him to supply the answer. Now, if I could add something um, with respect to the specific uh, example you brought up, uh, non-enforcement of... Um, uh, I guess the Controlled Substances Act and related laws uh, concerning marijuana and states where that has been decriminalized. Um, I think that actually reflects all the pathologies of this specific problem, uh, the suspension of law. Um, in those states, um, federal enforcement and bank ra banking regulations, um, the status of federal law is sort of in turmoil, and it's actually been quite deleterious to a number of businesses attempting to take advantage of the changed regulatory environments in those states. Nobody knows what the law is supposed to be. They get different memoranda from different federal agencies every week explaining what they can and can't do. And if you make a mistake, you might get prosecuted. But the interesting thing is, because the law is so uncertain, because you're just relying on the president's say-so as to what the substance of the law is, uh, when there is a President Romney uh, or, or, or someone uh, or a, a, a president with a different view uh, who comes into the White House, uh, people who were following what they thought was the law today could wind up being prosecuted. Uh, for the actions that they took. A uh, piece of paper by the president saying, I, suspend the, I hereby suspend the law uh, for a period of time doesn't necessarily absolve you of uh, criminal charges. Um, if you want a solution to this problem, um, there's been a lot of talk in Washington and otherwise um, about uh, a more federalist approach to this. We'll see if anything comes of it. But you know, in that specific instance, that may be uh, the easier way to do it. Well, um, if I can actually say something, uh, the, the, Andrew touched on this, but the uh, kind of the, the gorilla in the room is indeed the, and this touches on something that that uh, that Jonathan said. Uh, the courts uh, in Rach versus Gonzalez, for example, by allowing federal law to continue uh, regulating purely uh, local activity, has created this uh, weird situation where you have states legalizing the federal government simply for practical purposes, not being able to enforce federal law because worldwide there are only about 4,000 DEA agents, uh, uh, for example. Um, but I wanted to uh, ask all of the panelists, and you can say what we wanted to say uh, uh, as well, maybe incorporate into your comments. What about the marijuana example specifically? Uh, as uh, Jonathan said, or as, as you yourself gave the example, Nick, uh, with, with bank robbery, you know, there's prosecutorial discretion to only go after the high-value crimes or the, value, or, the, or the violent crimes or, or whatever the case may be. And just like a local prosecutor might say, well, I'm not going to go after simple possession of marijuana. I'm only going to go after violent drug cartels or something like this. Can't or and to what extent is this what's taking place, uh, those decisions be nationalized with uh, the Justice Department, the Federal Justice Department, instructing U.S. attorneys, uh, especially in those states where uh, there's going to be more marijuana because they have legalized it for state purposes, to say we are, you know, as the Department of Justice did after thinking about it for a very long time, that we're only going to go after these eight priorities, but not simple possession or you know simple small transactions. Yeah, let, let me speak to the marijuana example and then actually go back to your more general point because I want to underscore something that Jonathan said. 
so I suggested that the framers would have been deeply troubled by the idea of an executive saying, you know, I'm not going to enforce this. I'm only going to um, prosecute the Catholic bank robbers or the Republican bank robbers. And I suggested a case, the, perhaps the case that would trouble them the most is discrimination on the basis of politics, on the basis of your um, political, be it a political adversary of the president. I want to say a case that would have troubled them perhaps almost as much would be discrimination on the basis of the state that you live in. I'm not going to prosecute the bank ro- the, the Virginia bank robbers, I think would have horrified them. That again has the potential to cause the entire system to break down, right? You couldn't have gotten the framers to sign on to the Constitution at all if you could have imagined George Washington saying, well, but I'm going to enforce federal law differently in Virginia. So I actually think that's a case that the framers would have thought was, you know, among the most troubling possible cases. On your more general point, I just want to underscore for you uh, the position Jonathan's taking. So Jonathan has said to you, um, he likes a lot of these policies, and yet he thinks this is unconstitutional. I just want to underscore for you how, how admirable and how rare that is. And I want to urge you all to take home that example and follow his example. The policy question and the constitutional question are two different distinct questions. Don't say to yourself, well, okay, it might be unconstitutional, but I like the policy. Don't say that. Don't say that. Let's go right there. Uh, this is a similar question to your most recent question, um, but how would you distinguish as in terms of prosecutorial discretion, say you don't have enough resources to prosecute violent bank robbers from, let's say, DACA's use of we don't have the resources to seek out or deport all illegal aliens who are gonna ignore the young ones who are brought here when they're children? Yeah, it's a good question, and I do think there's a difficult line to be drawn. I don't think there's a clear line between prosecutorial discretion and what the president's done. I suggested a couple of ways in which what this president has done looks and feels legislative, feels different from the traditional use of prosecutorial discretion. Traditional use is sort of case specific, right? The kind of traditional image we have of it is, you know, I don't, I, the prosecutor is busy and that's a difficult case and the witnesses or whatever, and he doesn't seem like such a bad guy anyway. And so I'll let that one go and I'll prosecute this one. That's our sort of paradigm idea. Here, what we're talking about is a blanket policy that governs 1.8 million people. So just the sheer scale of it doesn't quite feel like prosecutorial discretion. The second thing that doesn't feel like prosecutorial discretion is the way that it exactly mirrors this act of Congress that failed. Right? That makes it that makes it look and feel a lot like legislation. Like it looks a lot like pretending that something is a law that isn't. Right? Enforcing something that is not a law rather than something that is. Uh, so you know, I don't think there's a clear line to be drawn. I think that case in particular feels legislative doesn't feel like prosecutorial discretion. If I could add something, it's interesting that, you know, I think you're right that there can be difficult cases, but what what the Obama administration has mastered is not merely suspending the law, but suspending the law and using that suspension in many instances as leverage to the people who would be otherwise be regulated to create new programs. So for example, in the immigration example, it's not merely that uh, these individuals aren't being deported, it's that the administration has actually created an entire regulatory regime 
um, where they have to register, they have to obey certain rules, they have to check in with the government at certain uh, certain intervals. Um, it's not merely um, acquiescence in violation of the law. It's actually a whole new regulatory program that didn't exist prior to the president taking this action. Um, you know, that's, I, I think, somewhat different. It's, a, um, it's quite right and a great point. The, the heart of prosecutorial discretion or the paradigm case is inaction. It's just sitting on your hands. I'm not going to do anything. Whereas this president's taking actual taking action to create an entire regulatory structure around these folks. So that's a terrific point, and it does distinguish this case. That, that not to uh, uh, gang up too much on that point, but that is something that's where the immigration and the marijuana context are different. Uh, uh, it's not just a matter of uh, you know, if in the marijuana context, uh, in addition to not prosecuting in states, you know, according to different priorities and things like that, the. Justice Department had also set up a marijuana regulatory regime with, you know, taxing those things, you know, a whole new well, legalization by itself. That would be uh, the closer parallel. That would then bring the marijuana and immigration situation. Well, Elliot, with, with due respect, that's what the administration has actually done um, regarding the extension of the Controlled Substances Act yeah, can't into, keep up with it, into banking regulation and other financial regulation. When, when, a, when a substance is covered by, and scheduled by the Controlled Substances Act, it's not merely the case that an individual can't possess or sell it. Um, it's, it, it affects a, hundreds of, of statutes and regulations uh, across the government. And the administration actually has created a whole new regulatory program as to how to uh, address the legalization of marijuana in the context of, uh, of those statutory uh, requirements. Wait, wait for the microphone, please. Frank Mannheim, George Mason University. Uh, President Obama's acknowledged expert on the Constitution. Are you aware of any time in an interview or maybe in, uh, uh, in an pre extended press conference where he has been asked whether he feels that you could eventually undermine the whole system of government by systematically uh, uh, doing end runs around law and the will of the people. Uh, I'm not aware of him speaking to this point globally or generally, but I did read you an entire paragraph of his view about his power over immigration. 20 months before his decision, he said, I do not have the power to do that. And there's a, that, that this is perhaps his best paragraph of constitutional analysis, but he... Um, <laughs> No, I, I think that what you've seen when he's been confronted with that, it's not just in these specific areas. Uh, you know, many of us have been critical, for example, of uh, the president's kill list policy, where he claims the, uh, and in fact has used the power to unilaterally uh, designate someone for, um, uh, uh, for a killing uh, without a, a judicial charge. And by the way, that was another out-of-body experience because when, when Holder announced that policy, he was actually at my alma mater f facing an audience of judges and law professors, and they also applauded. I, an attorney general saying, the president now asserts the right to kill any one of you based on his sole decision that you present a threat, an imminent threat to the nation. And when he was confronted on the kill list, 
we saw what has become a mantra where he said, you know, there is due process um, that I know that I'm doing it on my own, but there's due process. And this was Holder says, because we have this committee and the committee sits and decides and they use what are called baseball cards. I had a debate with one of the guys on this committee um, at uh, Johns Hopkins. And he was talking about, and he was actually trying to support this committee, which I thought was pretty funny because the rest of us were perfectly horrified. Uh, and he was talking about how they get baseball cards that go to the president with the pitcher, and on the back of the card is why we're going to kill this guy. And this somehow was, in his view, really a good thing of due process. The president actually gets a baseball card. Well, you see, all the cards are the same size. Yeah. So... Um, but the interesting thing about this is they're, they're arguing this faux substitute, that we're giving these people due process. It's part of the most scary thing you can hear from the government, right? Trust me, I'm the government, uh, and I've got a committee. Um, and, of course, it's ridiculous because the committee is his creation. Under his theory of the kill list, he doesn't need the committee. He doesn't have to comply with the committee. Uh, it's his pow inherent power. Uh, so it's a faux due process argument. The man in black. So uh, a lot of the conversation has been about prosecutorial discretion, but I, I want to raise another issue which Judge Kavanaugh brought up in Aiken, the uh, Yucca Mountain nuclear regulatory case, where he said that a far more explicit power of the president in the Constitution is the pardon power, which the Supreme Court has said can be used prospectively as well as reflectively and can pardon entire classes of people. So I'd say the, the immigration or the marijuana cases are probably a better example than the Obamacare or Libya case. But could the president not accomplish what he's done by saying, I'm pardoning everyone in Colorado for all marijuana possession related offenses for my entire term? It's certainly an interesting question. Um, I mean, you know, as an initial matter, he'd have to pay the political consequences for doing that, which I think in large instance, you know, his the policy of suspension of law has been designed to avoid political consequences and to maximize political benefits. So, you know, as a, as a practical matter, I'm not sure that you would necessarily see that kind of action. Um, I'm not going to speak as to, you know, the breadth necessarily of the pardon power, except to note first that this president in particular hasn't used it very much. And then second, um, Many of the suspensions of law that he's accomplished, we discussed uh, the marijuana one, um, we've discussed um, immigration. Um, I think another example is uh, the welfare work requirements that are imposed on states um, to, to receive federal funding. The, the suspensions have not merely been suspensions in and of themselves. They've been a com a, a, um, accompanied by a very intrusive, um, very detailed poly policy-oriented uh, regulatory programs imposing new requirements under law. Um, I think that might raise a different question, and, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily something that could be accomplished in and of itself under the pardon power. I don't know. I think it's also a distinction that even with the larger pardons, if you take uh, the pardoning, for example, of the uh, draft dodgers, you're talking about people that may not have been convicted, but they have committed the act. Uh, if the president were to say, I'm pardoning everyone in the future uh, that will violate, you know, you know, the, you know, uh, 18 U.S.C. code provisions of X, um, I think that there would be a question as how far you can go on that. There would certainly be a move to try to change the pardon power of the presidency. Of course, he hasn't done that, and I don't think presidents are likely to do that. Uh, but um, I think there are some inherent limits. The courts have largely left, I have to say, that 
The courts have largely left this in the discretion of the president. They're loath to get involved in the limits on pardons. Um, and so they've avoided the issue. But if the president really pushed an issue like that of I'm pardoning in the future anyone who violates 18 U.S.C. section such and such, um, then you could see a challenge. Gentleman in the back. Um, yes, uh, I wonder if uh, there are other routes. The, this presentation has been largely court-centric. Could a president run on a platform of passing new laws, and the Congress as well, uh, that would prevent these abuses in the future. That's one route. A second route, of course, is the courts. Third route is constitutional amendments. Fourth route is the constitutional convention. Um, those are the four possible ways, and I wonder if you could address the three that you really haven't addressed. You mainly talked about the court one. Could could there law be laws passed, uh, say, by a Congress for two years from now, that uh, and signed by the president that would fix this problem? Well, I guess I wouldn't be too optimistic about such a law. Uh, after all, the January 1st, 2014 provision is crystal clear. And the president, is, the president has declined to enforce that law. He's pretending that thing is not law. I don't know why I would be optimistic that he would comply with the hypothetical statute you're imagining if he's not com complying with the substantive statute today. So I'm not especially optimistic about that. I do, though, think elections should be about this. Elections should be about this. And, uh, you know, your remedy is to elect folks who understand their constitutional obligations and whom you have, you know, whom you believe will actually comply with their constitutional duties. Yes, uh, it, at, at, the end of the, at the end of the day, you know, law is a parchment barrier. If, if nobody wants to enforce it, if the, if the people don't want to hold their elected officials account, uh, to account, then uh, it all uh, falls down. But there, I thought you were going in a different direction, actually, and uh, I'll briefly uh, quiz the panel. Uh, I'm surprised this word hasn't come up. Uh, impeachment. Uh, both inter it's a political process, obviously. Uh, you know, we can have a legal debate about what constitutes a high enough crime and misdemeanor, what that means, whether it's a fiduciary duty, um, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a crime in the, in the criminal code uh, sense. Uh, for practical purposes, it probably doesn't uh, come into play unless the president's uh, approval rating, you know, drops below you know, 20% or something like that. But what role should uh, the impeachment process uh, uh, play uh, in cabining uh, executive abuses? Anyone want to take that? The, the problem is, is that when anyone mentions, uh, I'll call it the I word, um, it tends to make headlines. Um, yes, I'm trying to get this uh, here, <laughs> get this uh, forum uh, uh, some publicity. Well, that, well that, that's why I'm saying the I word. Um, the, I mean, the problem is, is that it's, it's, it's such a blunt instrument. Um, and, you know, if one were to take seriously, you know, re, you know, the across the board restraints on executive power and take seriously the separation of powers, um, you might be uh, getting a lot of impeachment proceedings, um, you know, or at least if, you've, if, if one viewed that as the proper way of enforcing uh, these, these separations. I mean, it seems to me that there ought to be and that there are, in fact, um, less uh, severe ways, less, uh, less blunt ways uh, of addressing these types of problems. Um, you know, an impeachment, you know, it's an interesting thing to debate, but, you know, as a political matter, it's probably not realistic. And as a practical matter, 
Um, you know, there's, there's a lot at this point that the executive is responsible for. If the recourse was to impeachment for every single thing that an executive branch off, officer did wrong, um, there may not be very many people in the executive branch. Well, I, I don't think impeachment is a viable option, uh, largely uh, because the courts have left such a uh, muddled line of precedent that you can't really say that a president is so clearly out of line with past precedent, because it's a, these cases are conflicted. Uh, for impeachment, you need something quite clear as to the, the president violating the law. Uh, presidents have been doing this. There are some precedent. It's, it has not been addressed by the courts, uh, which is why we end up back at the courts uh, for this type of question. Um, but the, I'm surprised that the one thing people haven't mentioned is the power of the purse, because when you go, as we did, when in the Libyan case we went to the court, the judge kept on saying what, you know, the power of the purse. And this is something of a constitutional mythology uh, that we teach our children, that when all else fails, Congress has the power of the purse. They can stop things from happening. And one of the things that some of us have been hammering away at uh, is that the power of the purse has lost its significance in our system for a couple of reasons. But oh, President Obama shows how clearly that's the case, because under ACA, President Obama shifted over $400 million from a dedicated purpose in ACA and shifted it to another purpose and used the money. And even the Democratic sponsor of that particular part of the bill called it outrageous. Uh, in the Libyan war, when we were in court saying, you need a declaration of Congress, uh, and the president was saying, I alone decide what a war is. So if I could just call it this limited engagement, then courts have no role and Congress has no role. And what did he do? He funded that entire war out of discretionary funds. There's so much money sloshing around in places like the Department of Defense that he was able to fund a major war. And it, people talk about Libya as a brief war. He attacked the capital of a sovereign nation. He attacked armored columns. He conducted a major air war, and not one cent had to be appropriated from Congress. And that's why this constant mantra of you always have the power of the purse is so silly. Well, I'm afraid we have to stop there. Uh, Nick and I have to catch a train to Cato's Friedman dinner tonight in New York. Uh, so thank, uh, let's uh, thank all the panelists. Thank you.